This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Dr. Lawrence Edwards. Lawrence is the president of the Kundalini Research Network, as well as the founder of a Kundalini Support website, kundalinisupport.org. He is also a contributing author to a new anthology published by Sounds True, entitled Kundalini Rising, Exploring the Energy of Awakening. Lawrence has practiced and taught meditation for over 35 years, is a board-certified neurotherapist and a licensed psychotherapist, and has been on the faculty of New York Medical College since 1989. I spoke with Lawrence about his own experiences with kundalini energy, an energy that is known by yogis and other serious spiritual practitioners to lie dormant at the base of the spine until it is activated. We talked about the subtle body and about the kind of transformation that is possible with Kundalini Awakening. Lawrence, to begin with, I would love it if you would share with us some of your own personal history and experience with Kundalini and Kundalini Awakening. Okay. Well, in, in some regards, that goes way back. Uh, for me, the, the experience and, and the, you know, what Kundalini is is uh, a way of coming to know sort of the feminine face of God, the feminine face of the divine. And my experiences began when I was three or four years old, uh, literally in, a, in my crib, uh, awakening in the night, and a raging thunderstorm was going on. And I saw this beautiful woman standing next to my crib, uh, looking over me very tenderly, and of course it three or four years old, that's got to be your mother, and, and I was watching her and feeling comforted by her presence, and I started to go, Ma, because the thunderstorm was really raging on, and she didn't answer. Um, and then I noticed that as the, the lightning flashed, she would disappear, because it actually, she was made of light, uh, and I could only really see her and her radiance in the dark. So then that, I started to go, Ma, that <laughs> started to actually scream, Ma, Ma. My mother comes running in, and this woman disappears. And for years, I would ask her, and I'd say, who's the lady of light? Who's the lady of light that I saw? Uh, And my my mother would go, you know, that was just something that happened in the thunderstorm. Don't worry about it. Well, 18 years later, she reappeared, uh, exact same form, and shortly thereafter, um, and I had just begun doing meditation and yoga practices, and shortly thereafter I met a, a great uh, master of kundalini, Swami Muktananda, um, and uh, began practicing and studying with him and experiencing what can happen with the awakening of kundalini and, um, and the unfolding of that grace through meditation and yoga processes. Now, you say that Kundalini is a feminine force, or the, the feminine face of God, and you saw this lady of light. Can you help me understand how is Kundalini feminine? Well, it's, uh, that, that term is used because uh, it, she, the, that energy often presents itself as um, yeah, a female form in the, in the yogic and Eastern traditions. Uh, the goddesses are the creative forces of the universe. And though in their ultimate sense they have no sex, they have no particular gender, uh, and can appear equally and do appear equally um, in male form and female form, they're often understood and approached as, as feminine forms of, of, of power. And so in the Eastern traditions, um, and actually beyond that, I mean, that the archetype of the divine feminine as the creatrix, uh, the creator and unfolder of all forms, 
so that in some and many in the, in the uh, highest traditions of understanding will say that all forms are her form. Uh, but it's getting at that this is the the fundamental energy and power of creativity to manifest the universe uh, and is often revealed and related to uh, in the form of the feminine. Mm-hmm. And now, however many years later this is, you know, decades later, when you think back to this lady of light, this uh, figure that appeared, how do you understand that? How do you understand the appearance of a goddess and then disappearance? Right. Well, I exp- my, my way of relating that uh, and experiencing that uh, as an ongoing presence um, was that in, uh, in our evolution as individuals, as uh, our spiritual evolution, which to me goes across lifetimes, and the benefits of practices and things that we do accrue and stay with us over lifetimes, uh, and that when the, the divine, uh, in whatever form it might be, uh, because it's not, it doesn't have to be in a feminine form, but for me it was, uh, was revealing itself in that way. It was, in a sense, the, the, the calling of grace, um, the calling of the, our highest power, our highest self, and uh, in a sense reaching out to the ordinary ego mind and saying, wait a minute, there's more to this world than what you think. Um, and so what appeared at that time to be you know, a, a separate force, a separate presence, uh, is now something that is as intimate as my breath. It's it's the uh, unfolding of, of what my essential nature is and what is the, the true essence of each and every person. Um, in fact, each and everything. So that there's there's really no separation now. It starts out, and that's true of, uh, of most spiritual practices. Things start out in a, in a realm of duality, of separation. Uh, but as the process matures and unfolds, uh, you come to the place of, of direct knowing uh, that there is no separation, there is no distance. Now, I know, Lawrence, that you've worked a lot with people who believe they're undergoing some kind of kundalini awakening process and perhaps are experiencing difficulties or confusion, and that as a, as a therapist you're helping people sort this all out. And I'm right. curious curious to know what you've seen as the central misunderstandings about kundalini awakening and try to help listeners understand more of, a, of an accurate view of the process. Okay, so, um, because I do get, I get calls and emails literally from around the world uh, you know, in part as my uh, background as being the, the head of the Kundalini Research Network and being somebody out there and connected to spiritual emergence networks around the world, I get phone calls and emails. And there are, uh, in a sense, uh, a few categories of how I, I look at things, some, some of which are people going through difficulties that may not be actual Kundalini awakening, and but they're spiritualizing them and sort of inflating them in ways, and they, they need help to get better grounded and see what uh, kinds of issues they're facing, whether it's depression, whether it's uh, an illness. Uh, I've had people calling me with symptoms that uh, really stood out to me as, as medical illness, and they had been misdiagnosing themselves, thinking, you know, saying it was kundalini, and people telling them, oh, yes, this is kundalini, and it, uh, when I could get them to get a proper medical diagnosis, it turned out that, you know, one person had a, quite a severe thyroid condition, another person had quite a severe neurological condition, uh, and they needed proper medical treatment. Uh, so those kinds of misunderstandings happen. Uh, when a person is going through a profound, spiritually transformative experience, and there's no criteria to say, oh, okay, this is kundalini, this isn't. Um, it takes having, you know, experience and having worked with this for, for decades now to, to help sort these out often. Uh, but two things that often come up for people is, one, the, the sense of being overwhelmed by the experience. Um, and so our kind of 
ego, ordinary ego mind, getting really overwhelmed and swamped by all the things that can be coming up, transcendent or divine things, as well as really difficult things um, that may have, be connected to physical processes that are going on. Uh, so that sense of overwhelm then can trigger fear, uh, and for some people, as well as the, the fear, a sense of uh, even anger about the, the process and, and what it's doing. Those kinds of emotions uh, really, uh, in terms of, if you want a sense of uh, that emotional energy running through subtle body, you know, Kundalini is, in a sense, its its home is uh, this subtle body that we speak out of in the Eastern traditions, made up of the chakras and the nadis and the channels of energy. Well, fear and anger are real uh, knots, real contracted uh, sort of presence in the subtle body, and anything that triggers that actually becomes that much more of. Um, uh, an obstacle to kundalini and intensifies difficulties. So often it's helping people just to both get grounded, to come out of the fear, to see it in a much greater light, uh, and be able to start transforming what that process is for them. Now just to unpack a couple of the things you've said, you said kundalini's home is in the subtle body. Can you help our listeners understand that a little more? Sure. Uh, you know, the subtle body, in, in the yogic traditions, and that underline both uh, classical yoga, but even uh, sort of Buddhist yoga traditions, uh, it's looked upon that, you know, we're familiar with having a physical body, and ordinarily that's all we would think of. Uh, but through the practices of meditation over, you know, thousands of years, uh, these traditions have looked at, you know, what are we beyond just the physical body? And one way of understanding is to say that in addition to the physical body, we have this subtle body, uh, a body made up of the mind, of energies, of patterns of energies. Some people are familiar with that because they know about acupuncture, and acupuncture really works on the meridians, the channels, the flow of energy in the subtle body, and how it affects our physical health. But in that subtle body, there are what are really uh, centers of consciousness that are called chakras. Uh, some people are familiar with that, but there's uh, a series of chakras running uh, along the central channel of the subtle body. It's called the Shashumna Nadi. And each of these centers of consciousness are a way uh, of understanding how this uh, sublime power of creation um, goes about manifesting the, the individual, the mind, the body, um, and the chakras are a map for understanding how that comes to be. The one that creates that is looked at as this power that we would refer to as kundalini. And it's said that through that process of creation, it then takes, uh, in a sense, a dormant form in the, what's called the root chakra. It's the lowest center of that energy and corresponds to the earth element. Uh, it's called the Muladhara Chakra. And so it's said that Kundalini in its dormant form uh, is, is resting there, uh, waiting for that time in the, in the soul's evolution across lifetimes uh, to awaken and unfold uh, really what's the, the ability to know the infinite. Uh, through much of our evolution, we come to know what's finite, what's limited, the limited mind, the limitations of body the limitations of consciousness. And it's seen that sort of in the course of evolution of the soul's journey, there comes a point where we've explored that far enough and it's time to regain our innate understanding of, of the infinite. And that power that allows us to know the infinite is our innate power of consciousness of Kundalini. Um, and so it's said to reside in this uh, root chakra, the Muladhara chakra, the earth center, and then the process, the subtle body process of kundalini awakening is experienced as dot, dot, dot. How is that experienced? Right. Well, it, it's experienced uh, across the entire realm of what we as humans are capable ex of experiencing. Uh, so the awakening of kundalini is a, 
uh, a way, uh, you know, one way of understanding it is, and the reason why it's called awakening is, uh, analogously, when we're asleep at night, uh, we're not aware of the ordinary reality, the physical reality, the bedroom we're in, all that. It's gone. We, whether we're in the dream world or the deep sleep world, uh, we, are, we are not aware of the ordinary world that surrounds us. When we awake in the morning, there it is. You know, the room is there. The light is coming in through the window. And we're suddenly aware of a world that five minutes before we were completely unaware of. Um, in a similar way, the awakening of Kundalini is the awakening of that power of consciousness um, that is in, innate, inherent to each and every one of us, to know the infinite, to know what transcends the ordinary mind. Uh, but the process that goes that we go through that will help uh, the ordinary mind and the body to be able to, in a sense, enter that field of knowing, enter that field of consciousness, um, is, a, is a process of transformation. And the body goes through physical processes um, that are called kriyas. Actually, kriya also refers to movements of that energy in the subtle body as well. Uh, those movements can every, be everything from subtle feelings of energy running through the body or heat or warmth. Uh, they can be tingling sensations. They can be uh, your hair standing on end um, to waves of rapture and uh, experiences of merger into the infinite and, and visions of light and uh, transcendence uh, and everything in between. So that process of unfolding uh, which was really the esoteric goal of all the, the classical forms of yoga, hatha yoga, mantra yoga, yoga, laya yoga. Uh, these had as their goal the awakening of kundalini because it was known that it was this extraordinary power that does the, the full transformation, uh, the, the full sort of rewiring of the body and the mind uh, so that it can know and participate in in this highest states of consciousness. Now, when we began our conversation, Lawrence, I asked you about your own experience with Kundalini Awakening, and you, and you took us to a, a time when you were three or four years old in a lightning storm. H- how, was, right. how was that appearance of this Lady of Light related to what you're describing here as the awakening of a, of a dormant energy in the central channel of our subtle body? What's the right. connection there? Well, that was, you know, the, the, the experiences of uh, being able to uh, perceive and, and sort of open the doors of consciousness. Awakening is, in part, be, beginning to become aware of uh, that there is something beyond the ordinary reality of the five senses and ego mind. Um, and so... That was, in my experience, already, you know, there were, there were raps on the door happening before the time that I actually met Muktananda and had a very classical kind of uh, kundalini awakening with him. But it, it was already the feeling that something was guiding me towards that uh, and, and that power. Uh, then being with, with Swami Muktananda and doing practices of meditation and use of mantra, and mantra is one of the, the classic ways that this power of consciousness is passed on to another. Um, that's when I also began having you know, the, the more classical experiences of um, energy and light flooding me uh, in meditation, um, the experience of uh, powerful energy surging through my body and dissolving all awareness of ordinary mind and ordinary consciousness. And it was those kinds of experiences uh, that also led me to doing my doctorate work uh, as a research project on the study of Kundalini and its effects on people. Mm -hmm. That's a fabulously interesting uh, doctoral thesis. What did you discover in the writing of it? Well, uh, what I was interested in was what happened to people long-term, people who had been practicing for 10 or more years. Uh, so the, the, that length of time was the minimum requirement for people having been practicing um, Siddha Yoga as a, as a classic form of Kundalini Yoga. 
and the, and to look at the kinds of transformations that had occurred. Uh, and in that in that research and looking at people who lived in ordinary life in the everyday world to people who were living in ashrams to even studying uh, a small group of monks of sannyasins, uh, swamis, uh, who were part of the tradition. Um, it was clear, and one of the things that delineated that there were uh, over 169 types of transformation uh, that could be discerned that covered everything from people's experiences uh, of everyday life, their relationships, uh, their capacities for love and compassion, uh, the health and shape of their bodies. Uh, it touched on everything. I mean, th- it was the, the most holistic, uh, completely uh, integrative and uh, uh, sort of all-consuming kinds of transformation that one can imagine. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, listening to you, if you believe that spiritual awakening this experience of unitive consciousness and, you know, there are different ways to define it, but let's just go with that, is always accompanied or could be characterized by a kundalini awakening. And what, what I mean by that is, you know, in, in today's world, there's so much talk about spiritual awakening, and yet right. the idea of kundalini and your kundalini awake, that's kind of for a few yogic freaks. It's, it's not, they're not seen as equivalent. And I'm wondering if you think they are. Uh, I don't think they are, uh, and I think there's uh, the, the people who begin to awaken spiritually and and even have experiences of transcendence uh, are beginning that that process. But Kundalini awakening is a unique part of that process that then really signals that an inner power of transformation is, in a sense, ignited that no longer requires the kind of um, self-will, self-motivation, involvement of the ego mind that ordinary practices done require. And so there's, there's there's an empowerment to the practice. And that's part also why... Uh, the awakening of Kundalini was sought after in so many different ways and different traditions and, and spoke about because it was seen that, you know, you would do your practices, do your practices, do your practices. And that's sort of like trying to get a fire going if somebody hands you two sticks. And you got to rub and rub and rub and rub and rub and rub and rub. And finally you get enough heat um, to, for the fire to get going. And then it starts to consume things. Whatever you feed to it, that fire ignites and releases the energy from. Uh, well, that point of ignition and what happens after that is different than what was going on before when you were rubbing the sticks. Mm-hmm. Now, let's say a, a listener is thinking to themselves, I wonder, if I, I wonder if the fire's lit in me. Do you think if they're asking the question, then it's obviously not? Or are there any reference points or telltale signs? Uh, there, there are usually a number of signs, uh, and they have to do with uh, how the experience uh, of being drawn to and uh, into, you know, and it can be any variety of uh, practices. I mean, I've known people who, you know, they got Shaktipat, uh, sort of a technical term for this awakening, just means descent of grace, awakening of Kundalini. And, and then entered into a, uh, you know, a Catholic uh, community that was, you know, connected to a Benedictine monastery. So it's not like you have to necessarily, what is ignited has to be yogic, in a sense, in nature. But what's ignited is uh, this, this strong fire and yearning uh, for knowing the divine, knowing the infinite, unfolding that capacity to do it. And you might do it in a Christian tradition, you might do it in a Buddhist tradition, you might do it in a Native American tradition, but what happens is you feel this, this inner uh, sort of unquenchable draw towards that. The first stirrings may be that happens occasionally, but at some point it becomes something that is so irresistible and so consuming uh, that it draws you along. 
Well, well, it's interesting the way you're describing it. You know, you're describing it sort of as a as a yearning or a longing. I, I thought you were going to describe it more in some kind of energetic terms. Well, I think that's an expression of that energy. Uh-huh. You know, in other words, we may not experience the energy as lights and sounds or this is and that's, but one of the ways that we experience energy is in our yearning, in our desires, in our longing. Um, but when that starts to shift from just the pursuits of, you know, ambition, pursuits of uh, possession, pursuits in the world, to the pursuit of something different, that started to say that, okay, our, our, there's a quickening of spirit there is another way that it would be spoken of. Or uh, it's a time in the soul's journey where it's starting to go, you know, these things just don't satisfy. Um, and that, that, that is already signaling that that soul's journey is going to take this kind of turn. And in the yogic tradition, you could summarize the, ho- the whole journey of, of the soul's consciousness across countless lifetimes as having two phases. One was called sovereignty. It means with form. It's the sort of outgoing and exploring the whole realm of what it is over lifetimes and lifetimes uh, to take on this form, that form, follow this desire, have this experience. And at some point, the soul starts to go, you know, I've experienced it all, I've known it all, but somewhere in the back of my mind, I remember I was part of something greater. Um, that, that awakening starts to happen, that remembrance starts to happen on some level, and it starts to turn the journey into what's called the, the, the nivrity, means without form. Uh, and it becomes a, uh, a part of the journey where we start to awaken up and, and let go of having to identify with this and pursue that and be encumbered by this other thing uh, because we're looking for what lies beyond all those different forms. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned this term Shaktipat and the descent right. of grace, and you were speaking about it I think, in in reference to the time you spent with Muktananda. But I'm curious, this descent of grace, does this always happen through uh, the connection with a master and transmission from a kundalini master? Or can Shaktipat, this descent of grace, just happen while I'm taking a walk in the forest? It can happen anytime, anyplace. You know, the the power of grace isn't limited by any any person or form. Uh, And so... It can happen then. It can happen in dreams. Uh, there are classic forms where people receive initiation from visitations of, of great masters or divine presences in dreams. Um, it can happen all of a sudden. It can happen in traumatic events. Uh, you know, I'm not far from New York City, and uh, the terrible tragedies of, of 9-11, there are people who had were transcendently awakened uh, because of the severity of the trauma thrust beyond the limitations of the ordinary mind. So trauma can do it. Uh, People have near-death experiences because of uh, trauma or, you know, a car accident, something like that, and it leads to kundalini awakening, shaktipat. So I'm curious once again, and and I I think that it's just trying to get my, my arms around how would I know if this was a Shaktipat experience? And I think what would help me would be if you would tell me in your own life, oh, these are times that they were descent of grace, Shaktipat times, versus, you know, intense moments in life. Right. Well, Shaktipat is usually, so just to clarify, is usually um, a term that's referred, that's used to refer to that initial awakening. Okay. So, um, you know, and that is often marked by a particular experience. It might be marked by a ritual because it was a part of um, a transmission through an empowered tradition. Uh, might be, have been a, a moment people will talk about their Shaktipat experience. Uh, the scent of grace can be felt over and over again. Shaktipat is usually more technically referring to that initial kind of awakening experience. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. And then in your own life, was there a moment when you said, oh, where you received Shaktipat? Was that with your experience with Muktananda? Well, uh, what, what happened was uh, becoming aware that I had actually had Shaktipat in a past life. Uh, 
and that was why um, I was even at a three years old having experiences of uh, this goddess of light standing next to my crib um, and the events that then led up to uh, meeting Muktananda uh, so my experience was a little bit uh, out of the ordinary uh, in, in that kind of regard but then being with Muktananda and starting to do those practices you know there was a time very very when I first met him of and receiving the you know the initiatory mantra from him along with thousands of others I mean it wasn't anything unique and you know suddenly there I was and he was and it was you know this was amongst a throng of people uh, but what happened to me in that moment was quite extraordinary of receiving this this mantra not even really knowing at that time much about kundalini shakti but i didn't know anything about this i was just heard about a great master um and a friend of mine had told me you really should meet this person he's really unusual um and i did and you know received the this this mantra uh, of Om Namah Shivaya, an, an ancient mantra that's used in many traditions. Uh, and I had heard of that before, but receiving it from him, uh, immediately I started to have uh, this extraordinary experience right there in the hall of uh, both settling into a profound stillness of meditation. And I had been meditating uh, in Buddhist traditions and Vipassana Buddhist traditions, for years, and this was unlike anything I had ever experienced. And over the next several days, leaving Muktananda and going back to my work, I was um, helping to run a Jungian psychiatric treatment center in Connecticut at the time. This was back in 75 or 76. And for days, uh, the experience continued to unfold and deepen with expanded states of awareness and meditation. And still, I, I wasn't sure what it was about. I was just sitting doing meditation practice, but now I was doing using this mantra, um, and I started hearing hearing mantras being chanted in meditation, um, seeing you know just fields and fields of light and energy and dissolving into them. Uh, it was quite extraordinary. Now you mentioned that you became aware of having received Shaktipat in a previous lifetime. How did you become right. aware of that, and what was the situation in the previous lifetime? Well, as, as is um, fairly common, uh, many people will have, as they pursue their meditative practices, and, and uh, I found this to be true having studied in Tibetan Buddhist tradition and under great masters in that tradition as well as yogic traditions, uh, the boundaries of time and consciousness that begin to dissolve in meditation can often lead to spontaneous experiences of uh, past lives. So it's not something that uh, one seeks uh, or has, you know, entertains a desire, because really entertaining any desire is um, uh, an obstacle. But these things can just come along. And so you're just sitting in meditation and you can find past lives unfolding. Some people don't, but other people do, and, and what they gain from that often helps them in certain ways. Um, and through that, I became aware of having spent um, a number of lifetimes as a Tibetan Buddhist uh, monk uh, living in Nepal, and through the empowerment traditions and practices there, um, having had that, uh, this energy of Kundalini awakened and, and unfolding. Mm -hmm. That's interesting and helpful. Thank you, Lawrence. You know, in the Sounds True anthology that we put together, Kundalini Rising, in which your essay is featured on Kundalini, her symbols of transformation and freedom, one of our, I guess you could say, hypotheses of the book was that more and more people are undergoing the experience of some form of kundalini awakening today than at other times in history. And I'm wondering from your experience running the kundalini support network and the kundalini research network, if you think that's true. Uh, well, I'm not sure. I've often been asked that. And, uh, you know, I, I don't have a way of saying, I haven't gone into a past life and go and had a sense of how many are awakening now. 
sleepless and then come back to this lifetime and say, oh, how many are awakening now? Uh, and seeing the difference. But I do have a feeling that there are a lot of people on our planet, uh, thank, thank, you know, the powers that be, who are waking up uh, and, and having spontaneous experiences, as well as what I think are um, still the reverberations of past lives where they had done practices. In the yogic tradition, uh, if you die before you reach samadhi, you know, the, the great samadhis um, and the states of freedom, all your yogic practices and the benefits of them that you've accrued over that lifetime and even previous ones go with you. And, and I see that a, a lot of what we think of as, uh, you know, uncaused means that we're just not looking past this one particular life, uh, that there are many people who have practiced yoga um, in Buddhist traditions and yogic traditions, Hindu traditions, as well as other spiritual practices and other traditions. And their, their strong intentions, their, the power of those practices have accompanied them into this lifetime. Um, and that's what we're seeing people suddenly going, wow, uh, and having these experiences that are inexplicable. I mean, I have somebody who came to me recently who is a, uh, you know, in a sense, he thought of himself as the least likely candidate for anything like this because, you know, he's a big city policeman and, and fireman, detective, worked in the most nitty-gritty neighborhoods, had no spiritual connection to anything, um, you know, was a bodybuilder, liked to, you know, drink and caress this and that. I mean, and suddenly he's having these experiences and his life is turned upside down. After going through all kinds of medical diagnoses and seeing, you know, endless doctors and the Cleveland Clinic and everything else like that, stumbles across my name, comes to me, and he's having, he's having profound kundalini processes going on. What kinds of experiences was he having that he was well, confused by? Well, he was by? having, uh, at first, and this, this can happen, uh, people can have as... Uh, as this process of transformation, as one's own power of transformation, because that's what this is. I mean, often when we talk about kundalini, the term sounds alien, so it makes it sound like we're talking about something separate and apart from ourselves, and it isn't. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's more c- closely connected to you than, uh, you know, your inhalation. Uh, but as this power of transformation unfolds, as for him, it was bringing up, really difficult times in his body and the purification process of uh, this energy transformation can be bringing up latent diseases, uh, muscle spasms, uh, joint problems, um, digestive problems. I mean, people can go through all kinds of things, uh, hot flashes and sweats and, uh, and things, numbing sensations, all kinds of things that can happen that that aren't the most pleasant ones that, you know, you might hear about in terms of spiritual transformation. But once they're, they're understood and then the energy is worked with, then you can start to get aligned with it and help it clear. Um, and that's what's happened with this fellow. And then he starts having, you know, all kinds of yoga kriyas. Well, you know, hatha yoga, the, all the postures that people go and learn at, you know, hatha yoga at the YMCA or whatever, um, those postures... They were developed by watching people who had kundalini awakened and their body was put spontaneously into physical postures by kundalini. That system was, was developed over thousands of years by watching that and seeing that as a spontaneous action. And sometimes people who have kundalini awakening will go through spontaneous hatha yoga postures. People go into headstands that never done it before, go into all kinds of yoga postures that they've never seen or heard of. Uh, but the energy is moving them through that to uh, both work the subtle body as well as the physical body uh, in order to set it free. And why might the awakening of kundalini energy result in some of those uh, physical symptoms that you described, like, you know, headaches or dizziness or hot flashes or, or you know... To do with what needs to be cleared out uh, for the vehicle of the body, the physical body, as well as the vehicle of the mind, the subtle body, uh, to exp- 
expand to be able to experience as much as possible uh, the fullness of consciousness and energy that we're capable of. And if there are blocks in the system, uh, the energy, Kundalini energy, your awakened Shakti, your this power of consciousness, works to remove them so you can more fully participate and expand into what is your own innate nature, your birthright to know this. Which brings us back around to your response to my question about the people who call you as part of the Kundalini Support Network, and they have questions, you know, is what I'm going through a medical problem or is it caused by Kundalini awakening? How do you help people sort that out? Well, first and foremost, it's, it's, to me it's always important to uh, get a good medical, you know, checkup, diagnosis, whatever, first, because if there is some underlying medical condition, that needs to be addressed. And it's always just prudent to do that. Because if it's not medical, that's fine. But if you're ignoring something, and I've seen too many cases of that, then these, then whatever the medical condition is, is progressing unattended to and can be even life-threatening. So to me, it's always prudent to get a good medical checkup, make sure there's nothing medically going on. Um, then, in addition, start looking at what's going on for that individual uh, what's happened in their life, what kind of practices they might have been doing, what kinds of stressors or, or traumas they might have gone through that has projected their awareness into some sort of uh, you know, state that may be transcendent but dissociative because it's not integrated. Uh, and so when I'm talking with a person, I try to go through you know, what's happening, where has this gone, what have they been experiencing, as well as try and find out what resources in that area I may know of to, to, to refer them to because they, you need to be working with somebody closely near you, you know, and, and uh, there aren't enough really skilled people in, in, the, in the field of Kundalini uh, that I'd like to see uh, who are really able to do this. But if I know of somebody in an area, then... You know, I say, here, try to, you know, try to work with this person. Or if I know people who have part of the skills, uh, you know, if a lot of symbolic material is coming up, people are being flooded by uh, those kind of images and archetypes, well, then often a good Jungian uh, and working within a, a Jungian framework can help with that. And there may not be a Kundalini specialist in that area, but there might be, you know, a Jung center and, and somebody trained in the works of Carl Jung. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people are getting overwhelmed by physical energies, and if there's a really good Qigong master in the area, they might help to uh, ground that and be able to help them uh, disperse that energy in a helpful way. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. That's helpful. So I can imagine at this point in our conversation, different listeners' responses. If people have made it this far in our conversation, that some listeners may be, you know, I'm going to immediately get a hold of, you know, Dr. Lawrence Edwards so that he can help me with my kundalini process. But I can also imagine someone saying, you know, I have a a yearning for this ignition that you described. You know, I've I've been rubbing matches, I've been doing my practices, but, you know, the truth is I don't think kundalini's really awakened in me yet. What would you suggest to that person? Well, uh, to me, it's what's what I've discovered in my own, my own practices um, that have drawn me across more than just one tradition. You know, uh, I studied deeply and long and, and trained as a sannyasin and gave up everything to, to study with Muktananda Swami in, in India and, uh, and pursue that, but also having studied with um, some great Tibetan Buddhist masters, um, a great Huicholi shamanic master, uh, and across the different traditions, what I see is when you find a, a deeply practiced, um, deeply committed, uh, morally, ethically uh, individual who uh, has really mastered the, the practices of their tradition and can pass on the, the power of that uh, with all the humility and grace that goes with that. Uh, that's what's important. And to me, there are... There are wonderful Tibetan Buddhist masters. There are wonderful masters in each tradition. But you have to go to the the real masters. 
you have to seek them out. Well, that's interesting. I think some uh, modern listeners think, you know, I don't, I don't really want to get in a relationship with a master. I mean, I can't I just read books and listen to Sounds True programs and do my practices? Well, that will give you a, a certain degree of knowledge, a certain degree of understanding. But what we have to understand is, uh, and part of what happens in anybody's spiritual pursuit, when it gets to a certain point, then what has to be worked with also is the confines of the ordinary ego mind. And the ordinary ego mind would like to say, oh, I'm the master. Um, I can be in charge of this. Um, I can teach myself. Uh, I can learn this. That's all the ego mind speaking. Well, if you want to get beyond the ego mind, then you're going to need help. Uh, and that's always been true. In fact, there was one of the great desert fathers from the, uh, the Gnostic uh, tradition uh, back, uh, you know, 1800 uh, odd years ago, uh, wrote that, you know, if you, see, if you see a person trying to climb to heaven uh, by themselves, pull them down. Because the higher they go, the greater their fall is going to be. Uh, because you can't, you can't get into that domain by just the, the efforts of the ego mind alone. And so it's always going to take some, um, some additional help in order for us to get past what the ego mind does. Mm-hmm. Now, I know one of the interesting things about you, well, there are so many interesting things about you, Lawrence, actually. I mean, you're such a creative and diverse background, but that you work with clients using neurobiofeedback and biofeedback technology. And I'm curious, in that work, working with scientific instruments, what you've discovered about the kundalini awakening process. What do these technological tools tell us? Well, what they say, and, and, uh, you know, my my work has has bridged a number of different uh, sort of paradigms, and you know sometimes I, you know I'm you know in the in the morning I'm I'm lecturing at the medical school or to a bunch of physicians, and in the evening um, you know chanting mantras and, <laughs> and talking about Kundalini, and and to me it's a great delight because these do all to go together. Uh, what what things like biofeedback and EEG biofeedback or neurofeedback allow us to do is to discover the, the same lessons that the yogis discovered, that these vehicles of mind and body, uh, they have controls to them that we can learn to use. And the yogic tradition, whether it's the use of uh, focusing uh, through mindfulness training, uh, focusing of mantra, well, we now know that there's a whole science to what goes on in the brain when that happens. So when I'm working with peak performers, you know, I work with an Olympic coach who sends me elite swimmers from around the world, uh, and we're doing peak performance training. Well, I'm training them to focus their mind in ways that is not dissimilar from the kind of focus that could be developed uh, by using yogic and meditative techniques. But neurofeedback allows us to dial into that, in a sense, that much more quickly because you could put a sensor on a person's scalp and begin to see what's going on and help them to change that. Well, I've had meditators come to me and say, you know, I've been meditating for many years, and I'm not getting all these benefits that, (laughs) you know, people are talking about should come from meditation. What's going on? Well, I'll put some sensors on their scalp uh, to read their EEG, and tell them to start meditating, and it turns out they've been sitting and thinking for the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, and they've been, you know, wonderfully uh, disciplined about that, but they've really not gotten past the discursive mind. And we can see it in the EEG. So by just a few shifts in how they practice, suddenly I've had people go, oh my goodness, this is what they were talking about. No wonder. Now, a, a, a few a few shifts in how they practice. Can you give me an example? What shifts? Well, part of it is what shows up on the EEG is, and with that, uh, it's it's often a letting go. But one of the great things about EEG biofeedback and and other forms of biofeedback is it's very clear feedback. In other words, if you sit down and meditate, 
the only feedback you're getting is your sort of felt sense of what's going on. But if you don't have a clear felt sense of what it means to shift states, to uh, shift your brain out of uh, a discursive pattern into something else, you may not be able to find that little doorway as it passes by. But if I put a signal on it and say, okay, every time you hear that tone, that's an indication of the kind of brainwave you want to settle into. Well, in short order, that person can start to put out that tone more and more and more and more fully, and it's a signal that tells them, oh, this is what it is. And now they don't need the, the, the neurofeedback machine anymore because now they know what that feels like internally. Now, we talked just a few moments ago about the power of the teacher and even the necessity of working with the teacher, but could my computer with its biofeedback capacities help me find a doorway like a teacher could? Well, it can help you find certain doorways. I mean, a book can help you find doorways, too, uh, but it's not going to uh, set you free of the ego mind. You're still the doer, and you're still identified as the doer, and sitting down doing something now with the computer. Um, and so what happens often is the ego mind tries to protect its supremacy in the realm of its world and avoids coming into relationship to a teacher uh, specifically in order to protect itself. Yeah. Well, Dr. Lawrence Edwards, it has been really interesting talking to you here on Insights at the Edge. And to finish our program, I want to ask you about Insights at the Edge in your life. And what I mean by that is I'm curious if there's an edge or a question you're asking these days, something that you're working with. Uh, well, at this point in in my practice, it's, and, I, and to me, this is, this is where most all practices eventually lead up to, is uh, it's the moment by moment being surrendered to the power of the divine, the presence of the divine in every moment. And that my ordinary mind, ordinary self, uh, the, the actions of this body, how to have it always be in service of that. Well, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about speaking with you. Yeah, who you are and the work you're doing. Dr. Lawrence Edwards is a contributor to a new Sounds True anthology called Kundalini Rising, Exploring the Energy of Awakening. And his essay in the book is on Kundalini, her symbols of transformation and freedom. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.